invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, I've been preaching through the second half of Matthew this year. We're in chapter 26 as we were last week. We'll finish this part of chapter 26 this week. The title of the message is The Sacrifice of Obedience. I don't know what you think about when you hear those words, but both of them sound kind of painful. Why do we struggle so much with obedience? And don't act like you don't. I played in a charity golf tournament yesterday, Captain's Choice. Some of you play in those. And you can buy mulligans, which is cheating, but at least it's part of the rule, right? One of the guys I was playing with said, well, I can just give y'all my mulligans. I was like, well, I don't think you can do that. He said, well, I know you're not supposed to do that, but who's going to know? And I said, well, I'll know, you'll know, and God will know. Not many holes later, like we're in a sand trap. He's like, well, let's just put the ball in the fairway because you can move with a club length. I said, well, you can't take it out of the sand trap. Who's going to know? Well, I'm going to know, and you're going to know, and God's going to know. It kind of became a theme the rest of the round. But we struggle with obedience, don't we? Whether it's obeying the speed limit or who can eat from the all-you-can-eat buffet. You know, we just, we just struggle with obedience. Obedience means you're sacrificing your will. And there's that word sacrifice. We struggle with that word as well. The definition of obedience is compliance with an order, request, law, or submission to another's authority. Sacrifice is giving up something valued for something else more important or more worthy. So the sacrifice of obedience. We're looking at a passage of Scripture this morning that is incredibly important. To understand the sacrifice of Christ's obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let me read this passage. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I want to read the passage, but I want to draw just three distinct thoughts from the entire passage. So Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The first thought is, Christ's obedience was costly. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, as Jesus' death was unique, 
so also was his anguish. And our best response to it is hushed worship. I really want you to get the sense of what Christ went through on this night. It had been a long day. He had sent a couple of his disciples into town. He said, you're going to see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. Tell him the master needs it. But they also had to secure the lamb for the Passover celebration. And then they had experienced the Passover. And if you read John's Gospel, it's chapters of teaching that takes place in this upper room where Jesus washed the disciples' feet and where they had observed the Passover, which was a long meal in and of itself. And then he instituted the Lord's Supper. He had also said to them, One of you will betray me tonight. And of course, all the disciples are saying, well, It's not me. It can't be me. And it was obviously Judas. But right before they head out to the Mount of Olives, or perhaps as they're going, Peter speaks up and says, Listen, if all the rest of these betray, if all the rest of these fall away tonight because of you, I won't. In fact, he said, If I have to die with you, then so be it. I'll die with you. And we miss a little phrase at the end of that passage, and all the disciples said the same thing too. So by now, Judas is gone to get the crew that's going to come and arrest Jesus. But there's 11 disciples who all say, we're not going to betray you tonight, even if it cost us our lives. So they walk down the Mount of Olives. They come to a place called Gethsemane. The word means olive press. You can go to Israel today and get pretty close to the spot where Jesus prayed because there's an ancient olive grove on the side of the hill of the Mount of Olives. And it's significant what he prays there. But first I want you to see that his obedience was costly. It says he, he takes the 11 in, and it, this is probably a grove of olives that was owned by a friend, a, a follower of Christ, a believer, who said, anytime you want to use this, this, this is here for your use. And it was probably walled with stones and probably had a gate. So he walks in, and the 11 disciples get inside the garden, and he says to eight of them, sit here, I'm going over yonder. And he really doesn't tell them a whole lot, but I think he's expecting, guard the gate. In case while I'm praying, somebody comes before I'm ready for them, let me know something. Then he takes Peter and James and John, that's the sons of Zebedee, he takes them a little further into the garden, and he tells them to keep watch. But he also tells them, he, he begins to be grieved, and they saw that. They had to sense the power of this moment. Jesus has just told them, I'm going to be betrayed. One of my disciples is going to betray me. And they had to get a sense of the grief that he was going through. And he was distressed. The word grieve means to be sad or to be full of sorrow. The word distressed means distressed of mind, dejected, depressed, full of anguish. What was he upset about? What was he grieving over? And I think if we miss this, we probably miss part of the anguish that he was dealing with. Jesus was not distressed over dying on the cross. There are other men and women who've been martyred for the faith, so he wasn't somehow a coward looking at the cross, more so than these men and women that have been burned at the stake or given their life, had their head cut off for the cause of Christ. That's not what distressed Jesus so much. Here's... here's we we got to get this. I think here's the beginning of it. Jesus 
knows what the fullness of that is going to be. He talks about a cup. And he asks God, is there any way for this cup to pass by? In the Old Testament, that cup was described as a cup of God's wrath. Several places in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is anguishing over. He's about to experience something he had never experienced before, and that is he was going to drink the cup that you and I deserve to drink. The cup of God's wrath. In fact, the fullness of God's wrath. He also is about to be betrayed by one of his followers that had been with him for three years. Judas. But not only that, he's going to be forsaken by the other 11 disciples. In fact, ultimately, he's going to say to God on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that's why he's in this grief and distress. And he finally says to his, these three, he says, My soul is deeply grieved. It takes the word grief and adds another word to it. And it's the word we get periphery from, which means all around me is sadness. Jesus felt pressed in with this sadness, this grief, this sorrow, this stress of the moment. In fact, to get a real picture, we look at Luke's gospel. We don't, we don't turn there. I'll just tell you. Luke chapter 22, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three describe this event in the garden. Luke's is fairly brief, but Luke was a physician. And so Luke gives us a couple of medical thoughts that Matthew and Mark don't give. Luke says... First of all, that there's an angel that comes to minister to him. In fact, Jesus said, my soul is deeply grieved even to the point of death. God has to send an angel just to minister to Jesus. That's how dire the circumstance was. And under such stress that Dr. Luke tells us, he sweat drops of blood, which is a medical phenomenon that is possible, but probably not something you and I would ever experience. That's what's going on with Jesus as he falls on his face to pray. And here's what he prays. Prayed it three times. First time, Father, is it possible? Is there any other way than for me to drink of this cup? But immediately on the heels of that, yet not my will, but your will be done. What's Jesus asking? Is it possible? Yeah, it was possible. John chapter 10, Jesus says, Nobody took my life from me. I willingly gave it. He could have gotten up and left. But he's asking the Father one last time, Is there any other way? What's, what, any other way for what? Is there any other way to redeem mankind? Is there any other way to pay the penalty for the sin of the people that are going to trust me as Lord and Savior? Is there any other way? Now, our world has come up with a bunch of other ways. And people will tell me as a preacher, you're mighty narrow to think Jesus is the only way. Well, I didn't have that thought originally. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. And I believe that's what Jesus is saying when he's in the garden. Is there any other way? I've had people say, we're, not, we're all getting to heaven, just we're dancing to the beat of a different drummer. I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm dancing to the beat of any drummer. I don't dance real well. <laughs> But if there was another way, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. If God had come up with another plan, then why did Jesus have to go through this? The reason Jesus went through it was there was no other way. And the first time he prayed it is a little different than the second two because the first time it is, is there 
Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Is it possible? If it's possible, but not my will, but yours. He comes back and finds them sleeping. We're going to talk about that in a minute, about loneliness. But he comes back, and the next two times, it's more of a prayer of, my Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. It's almost as if he's battling. Is this temptation from the enemy that he's battling here? First time it is, hey, if it's possible, let this happen. And the second two is, because it's not possible, your will be done. Jesus is struggling with that whole issue, and that's part of the costliness of his obedience. This wasn't easy. Yet not as I will, but your will be done. And we learned something from that. Real prayer, when we pray to God, we can tell God what we'd like to see happen. But ultimately it is, God, I want your will. You know why? Because God's good and God's ways are better than my ways. It may be that what I'm praying for, God's saying, you don't really want that. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Because ultimately at the end of the day, God, I don't want my will. I want your will to be done. You're submitting to God's will. The decision is left totally up to the Father. Then he says the same thing the second two times he prays. In fact, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 7, says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he had suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all of those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is crying out to God. He's not a coward facing Roman soldiers. He's a, he's a savior about to experience divine wrath. So what does obedience mean to us? Obedience means we're sacrificed getting our way. And, and if that sounds bad, it's because we haven't gotten to the place where we realize how good God is. I would far rather have God's way than my way. And I'm still selfish. There's still times I want things my way. But the truth of it is, it's always been better to have it God's way. So obedience is costly. Obedience can also be lonely. I'll just start out by saying, there's times doing things God's way, there may not be a bandwagon to jump on. If you wait for consensus in this world, it may not be that the consensus is going to be let's obey God. Even among religious people, even among people you go to church with, sometimes it's we don't seek God's will first. It's here's what's going to make me happy. I've even had somebody tell me that before. And God wants us to be happy, doesn't he? Well, I do know this. As a believer, I can experience joy. But sometimes that's not happiness. In fact, I can experience joy in the midst of sorrow because of the Spirit of God present in my life. So his obedience was loneliness. And he faced a loneliness no other person could ever face. He had experienced perfect intimacy with God, and he was about to sense that God had forsaken him. Talk about being lonely. He had brought 11 disciples with him. But eight of them right at the gate, we're not sure what they're doing, but the three that he's brought 
that are the closest to him, Peter, James, and John, what are they doing while he's going through the most anguishing moments of his life? They're sleeping. In fact, isn't it interesting? Most of the time that Jesus goes off to pray, he goes by himself. The rest of the gospel that said he went away to a lonely place or a secure, secluded place. But here he took the disciples with him. But Jesus knew that the true solace that he was going to experience was going to be in the presence of God. And I believe he experienced that in the garden, even though his closest followers were asleep. So let's look at his loneliness. He took Peter the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he says, keep watch with me. He's asking them to participate with him. He's told the group at the gate, I'm going over there. He goes over there, and then he goes a little further away. In fact, one of the other gospel writers said he went about a stone's throw away. Well, I'm not sure how far you can throw a stone. depends on how big the stone is. But I get the sense that Jesus was close enough that they could hear him pray. People have said, well, how do we know what Jesus prayed? I think the disciples heard it. I think Peter, James, and John heard it, but they only heard a little bit because they ended up going to sleep. And it says they were sleeping because of sorrow and stress in their own lives. So he's asked them to keep watch with him. We've heard about the prayer. He comes back and finds them sleeping. There's no indication at all that they've prayed one single word. Maybe they did. There's no indication of it. Self-confidence produces spiritual drowsiness. Where was their self-confidence? Folks, they had just said minutes before, we won't betray you. We're with you. We're behind you all the way. Even if it cost us our life. And less than an hour later, they can't stay awake for this one they had pledged allegiance to. So what are the disciples doing? Poking their chest out. I'm a man. I'm brave. I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to protect you. Jesus says, well, how about just keep watch with me? And later on he says, how about praying for yourself? And they couldn't do that. Self-confidence produces spiritual drowsiness. He says to Peter, isn't it interesting? It's specific. It doesn't just say to the three of them. He says to Peter, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Now, I don't know if it had been that he had prayed already for one hour or if he intended the whole time is going to be about an hour. But either way, could you, you were willing to give your life for me, but you can't stay awake for an hour? Peter's the one who had told him, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows in the morning. And Peter wouldn't have believed that. Oh, no, Jesus. I'll die with you. That's kind of like, young ladies, when a guy tells you, I would die for you. I would climb the highest mountain. I'd swim the deepest stream. And if it ain't raining Sunday, I'll come see you. That's, that's kind of, you know, us men sometimes can say things that we don't think about. That's kind of what the disciples had said. They, they had put it out there. We're brave, but they couldn't stay awake. And so Jesus says to them, keep watching and praying, lest you enter into temptation. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Where was their confidence? Their confidence was in their strength. I won't fall away. At the moment of what they were going through, they should have been praying. 
Why is it sometimes prayer is our last resort? Ladies, I don't know if you struggle with this like men do, because I, I know men. But sometimes we, we want to fix stuff on our own. As so I can identify with the disciples, oh, no, I won't fall away. And when they see what Jesus is going through, the grief, the stress, the sorrow, the anguish, wouldn't it make sense that they would have been praying for Jesus? And they're having struggles staying awake. Wouldn't it make sense that they would say, God, help me? I want you to remember that next Tuesday, next Wednesday, next Thursday, when things press in in your life. And it seems like prayer is the last thing we think about. It ought to be the first thing. Their confidence was in their strength. Here, here's just some thoughts I wrote it down about how lonely I think Jesus felt at this morning, at this moment. At this moment of loneliness, Jesus is about to experience the treachery of Judas's betrayal. The, the guy that had been with him for three years, who had been in the upper room with him for part of the Passover celebration. The desertion of the other 11. You know, nobody can hurt you as deeply as people you love. The outright denial by Peter. Peter not once, but three times is going to deny that he even knows Jesus before the night's over. He's going to face blatant injustices, both from the religious people and Roman authorities. If you look at the trial of Jesus, a lot of laws were broken. Number one, the Sanhedrin wasn't even supposed to meet while it was dark, and apparently that's exactly what they did. They weren't supposed to condemn somebody unless there was witnesses. There wasn't any. Pilate even said, I find no guilt. Several times Pilate said, I find no guilt in this guy. Kill him. He's beaten, mocked, and the worst thing, right before he breathes his last breath, he senses that perfect intimacy with God had been broken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know if Jesus knew that was coming. But God hates sin. And so for that moment when the most profound thing in human history was taking place, Jesus Christ is dying for the sin of the world. I don't know if physically God turned his back, but Jesus sensed at that moment, God's not there. Why have you forsaken me? He felt all alone. And the last thought, Christ's obedience was valuable. Why was it so important that Jesus die on the cross? Well, Hebrews 9 verse 22 said, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. It took somebody paying with their life and shedding their blood to pay the penalty for our sin. Now, the Jewish people had been experiencing that, celebrating that for hundreds of years with the Passover. They had taken a Passover lamb every year and slaughtered it and celebrated this Passover that reminded them of Egypt and their, their escape from Egypt and the fact that the angel that came to kill all the firstborn of humans and beasts passed over them. It was a picture pointing to the cross. It was God's plan of redemption for Jesus to be that perfect spotless lamb that one day would give his life. That's why it's valuable. It's priceless. Can't put a price on that. But Jesus' death was far different than the martyrs. 
There are going to be martyrs that come after Christ, even martyrs today. But they don't face the sting of death that Jesus did because their sin and guilt has been taken away because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's why it's so valuable. Jesus, after coming back the third time, finding his disciples still asleep, I don't know if an hour had passed or now it's been three hours. I don't know if each prayer session had been an hour or if the whole time was about an hour. Either way, he comes back the third time and he says, Are you still sleeping? Well, time to get up. Get up. Behold, the hour is at hand. Throughout the Gospels, the disciples, even his own mother, had wanted him to do things that would usher and, and speed up what was coming. And he would always say, It's not yet my time. It's not yet the hour. Well, now it is the hour. He says to his disciples, The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed, literally surrendered, given over, delivered up into the hands of sinners. I don't think that the weight of that really fell on the disciples like it should have, but we need to get that. Jesus is basically saying, Okay, here it is. I'm about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Can I be honest with you? If it had been me, I'd have run the other way. I mean, we like to present this brave exterior, but what would you have done? I mean, there's times I've had to go to the doctor for stuff, but I'm just like, I don't want to go through with this. Jesus is about to go to the cross for you. And he ain't running away. He knows what's coming. He could probably look across the Kidron Valley and see the torches coming, the soldiers, the religious people coming, and he walks head on into it. The time is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. This is a verb that usually means to go forward to meet an advancing enemy. Here we go. And we know from accounts after this, the disciples, Peter, tried to prevent that. They're, they're coming to arrest Jesus. Peter whips out a little sword, cuts a dude's ear off, thinking, well, this is going to save the day. Peter, you're outnumbered. But what did Jesus say? Peter, put your sword up. Do you not know I could call 12 legions of angels? A legion of angels was somewhere between six to 8,000, or a legion of an army on earth. He uses that word to describe angels. At least 72,000 angels. Jesus is saying, hey, we're going to meet the enemy. Peter thinks, okay, I'm going to prove how brave I am. I'm cutting this servant's ear off. Jesus says, Peter, this has to happen. If I wanted to do something differently, I could call 70,000 angels. And I've always wondered, how many angels would it have taken? I'm thinking one. But that's... Jesus, behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Listen, the sacrifice of obedience. Obedience means not getting everything your way. And have I thought about that this week as I've prepared this message? God has continued to say to me, the more intimate my fellowship with Him, the more I know God, the more I realize how good God is. So I'm not saying that to shame you this morning. If when I say to you, obedience means not getting your way. If something inside of you just 
pushes back from that and says, no, I'm going to have my way. Listen, get to know God. Because His way is better than our way. His ways are higher than our ways. Submitting to the will of God is part of prayer. We don't just pray and ask God for things. That's what a two-year-old does. And that's what we do when we're baby believers, when we're young Christians. So, listen, if you're working with people who've just come to faith in Christ, that's kind of their mindset. Because they haven't gained a depth of understanding of who God really is and that He is good. You know the saying, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And if it doesn't sound good to you, it's because you don't yet know how good God is. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. I want you to think about that just a moment. We can look at a historical account of Christ in the garden, and I hope that we catch the significance of it. But let's bring it into today. Just between you and God, is there a struggle in your own life to be obedient? Is it something perhaps that God's laid on your heart that He wants you to do? School started back. Maybe it's something at school that God's saying to you, I want you to talk to this person, or I want you to lead in this particular way. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's within your own family or neighborhood. Obedience is saying, God, I don't even know how I'm going to do that. But I'll tell you right now, I'll submit to your will. That's when we get to see the exciting work of faith, when God flexes his muscles. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of obedience that we see in the life of Christ. And God, we can't put ourselves in his position, but yet I pray we learn from it. First of all, I pray we learn the significance of what Jesus did on the cross and that it wasn't some easy march to death for him. It was costly. It was painful. It was horrific. It caused him incredible grief and distress. And yet, God, I pray that we learn from that, that when we go through similar things that distress us, that cause us grief, that the first thing we'd want to do is get alone with God and pray and perhaps even ask other people to pray with us and for us. And then, God, on the other side of the garden, we see the cross. And we recognize the significance of what Jesus did on the cross to pay the penalty that we all owed but could not pay. Thank you. Thank you for the work of Christ. God, thank you for drawing us to yourself. And God, I pray that would affect us this week when situations come our way, that God, we'd be faithful. Thank you in Jesus' name.